but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for today, the 4th of November. How's it going? I'm CJ Baumgartner, and we're diving into the latest in Minnesota sports here for today. And first, let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves, who once again lost last night. And there is a big... uh, Big deal uh, in terms of post-game. We'll get to that with a cat-like tweet. Whatever. First, let's talk about the game uh, for the Timberwolves. And they lost to the Clippers last night. And it wasn't it wasn't pretty. And the Wolves team got bit by the third quarter again. And if you look at the fourth quarter, they gave up 45 points to the Clippers last night. I'm sorry, you got 45 points in a quarter. That's not going to win you anything in the NBA. Now, I understand the Clippers, even though they don't have... Even though they don't have uh, Kawhi playing for them, they still have Paul George. They still have a good collection of talent. I understand that they're a good team. I'm not saying the loss itself is bad. I'm just saying it's the fact of the Clippers are only three and four, by the way. You gave up 45 points to them in a quarter, and that was the only quarter, by the way, uh, outside of the first quarter in which they out, you were outscored. And in the first quarter, you only outscored by four points. So that's basically nothing. And you made it. The point was, it was literally outside of the third quarter. If you put the points combined from all three quarters, it was a tie game. But the third quarter, they couldn't play. And that's the thing. This Wolves team, they're a a good collection of talent, but they are not a complete roster. And I think that is what you're starting to see from this team. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to be able to win. That's not going to say they're not going to be able to be competent this year. But it's to say that, hey, you know, they really do have flaws, and these flaws glare big time. In terms of the three points, when in terms of your defense, when stuff isn't working out, uh, you know you look at the Wolves. From three, they shot 35%. The Clippers, they shot 60%, or at least 58 from three. They shot just as good from the three-point line, just about as they did from the field. And they only shot 36 threes. The Wolves shot 40, and they had 35%, which goes to show you that even though the Wolves continue to try and build this 3-and-D type model, they still just can't find the pieces to make it work. They still struggle in getting it to go. Now, I will say the free throws improved for the Wolves last night. They made 15 of 16, but and they did out-rebound the Clippers. But that's just the thing. The Clippers shot great last night. They shot 60% from the field, to which has a lot of people saying, hey, by the way, uh, we think that... Uh, the Wolves can win next time. They played really well, and the Clippers just got hot. I think there is an argument to that. I do. I just think it's just still not a good look when your team... I think the best thing is that the same issues always bite the Wolves, is that they are not a complete team. They struggle at periods of the game, and when they struggle, it's often that one quarter that just sinks them. And a lot of teams in the NBA will sink you if you don't play well for a quarter. But on the positive side, and I promise I'm not going to be negative here, uh, again the Clippers played out of their minds in terms of shooting. They shot 60% from the field, 58% from three, and missed only one free throw in the game. And they got out-rebounded. They uh, 
the Wolves scored about 14 more points in the paint. So I think this is just a situation where Clippers just shot well. They shot really well, and they got a win. And it's a situation where the Wolves are going to play him again Friday night. I believe it's Friday. And they're going to play him at the Target Center again. And we talked about this on the podcast yesterday, is that Chris Finch, the head coach of the Wolves, when talking about it with the Pelicans, said that he liked it. It feels a bit more like a playoff atmosphere, to which it does. You know, you're playing the same team for a couple games in a row. You just played him once. Now go play him again and figure out how to, you know, how to win. And I think that that's a good attitude to have. The Wolves just need to be in a position to make the playoffs. But I saw this tweet that says that the Wolves uh, have, are three and four on the season, but all of their losses record below the five at or below the 500 mark. So it's not like the Wolves are losing to these, oh my gosh, this team is just playing lights out to start the season. They could have, and Kat said it yesterday, we could, it was either Kat or Ant, but I'm pretty sure both have spoke on it at some point, that really, I think it was Kat said, they should be 6-1, and 7-0. and And the answer is, they really, really should be. They should be. They should have beat the Clippers last night if the Clippers don't, maybe we'll give them that Clippers loss. But they should have beat the Magic. They should have beat the Pelicans. They should have, I mean, I again, just with this team, they should have, they could have beat the Nuggets. I'll, I won't give them as much slack for the Nuggets loss. That was a good game. And that's the thing about the Wolves is they do play some good games. Some of these losses are frustrating. Losses like the ones to the Magic and to the Pelicans, frustrating. Losses to the Nuggets, you can kind of let go. And losses to the Clippers like this, it's harder because you played really bad in the third quarter, which is a big narrative for this team is playing bad out of the half. But there's a good chance that the Wolves do win this game because of the shooting. I mean, L.A. shot out of their minds from the field, from behind the arc, from at the charity strike, all of that. So it's really safe to say that there is a chance that when they play him again on Friday, and maybe D'Angelo Russell comes back, maybe he doesn't because, of course, he was hurt, and Patrick Beverly didn't play. So maybe, or Patrick Beverly did play, excuse me. He didn't play on, uh, he didn't play on Monday. But you look at, they still have, uh, they have... Patrick Beverly, if D'Angelo Russell can play a little bit, they they can win. I think that's the biggest thing. But this isn't a full-strength L.A. Clippers team, but it's still a pretty darn good L.A. Clippers team, even though the record is 3-4. and four. Uh, This is still a game the Wolves should win. And that, I think, is on Friday. And then they play Memphis, who's a tougher out. They go to Memphis, which has just been the Wolves' kryptonite over the last, like, five years, is playing in Memphis. They do that on Monday, and then next week they go to Golden State, they go to L.A. to play the Lakers, then they play the Clippers again, then they play the Suns. So they have a Western Conference uh, matchup. They have a road trip going to four Western Conference teams, and then they come home to play the Suns. The point is, is that these these next six games are a gauntlet, and the, the last, you know, you include the last one before that, which is why the Wolves should have beat Orlando. The Wolves should have beat the Pelicans. The Wolves, you know, if they could have just eked out a win, you know, against Denver. I mean, how different do we look at this team? We look at this team a lot differently. And it's through the fault of the Wolves that they ended up losing, but they had a chance to flip the narrative. We talked about it all offseason. This schedule was gifted to the Wolves to get on a hot start and at least start catching people's eyes, catching people's eyes, and, and they can do it. And that's just been the thing of the Timberwolves. Every, they've been gifted all the opportunities. They need to be able to cash in on them if you actually want people to get invested, not just from the fan base, but from the outside looking in. All right, well, that'll uh, do it for our Wolves coverage here. Uh, the Wild are going to play against Pittsburgh 
uh, on Saturday night. So nothing really much to report on for the Wild. We kind of talked about them yesterday. If you want to hear that conversation on Kaprizov and why all the hype about him not having a great year to this point was kind of overblown as he got the game-winning goal a couple nights ago against Ottawa in overtime. But taking a look here, let's take a look at the Minnesota Vikings here for a second. And diving back into something we talked about yesterday. Yesterday we talked about we talked a lot about Mike Zimmer and his future and all that kind of stuff. And and that was a long conversation. And that was a conversation worth having. And if you want to go back and hear that, go to yesterday's podcast and listen to it. Today we're going to be talking about MVP candidate Kirk Cousins, who went one for 13 on third down and threw short of the sticks every single time. And... That's the thing with Kirk Cousins went one for 13 on third down. The offense is 15th in points and hasn't scored a second half touchdown at home all season. We're in November. And uh, yeah, they've had maybe what, like two, three in terms of the other road games. So yeah, not, not great, Bob. I mean, when you look at this, Kirk Cousins has thrown, uh, this is again from uh I believe this is from Courtney Cronin. It says Kirk Cousins has thrown eight of his 23 attempts behind the line of scrimmage. When he's thrown beyond 10 yards, he's four for five, 101 yards, 20 yards per attempt, and one touchdown. And that's the, that's the thing. That's the thing with the Vikings, Kirk Cousins. And I don't, I'm not necessarily on the Kirk hate train this year. Everyone's like, oh, Kirk Cousins has a bad game, and everybody's now back to railing on him. Yeah, because that's how you do it. A guy's a bad game, you call balls and strikes. What? I'm not here to sit here and make excuses for Cousins. I thought Cousins has played a great season to this point. And the and here's my saving grace for Kirk Cousins. I don't Kirk Cousins is a guy who follows his reads. He's a guy who's gonna do what he's told. He's the good little soldier. He's you know, he'll he'll follow the plan. He's the corporate quarterback, as some people have said. He takes, you know, he's just very boom, 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 boom. Tell me, you know, here's the, here's the recipe. I'm going to follow the recipe. I'm not going to add my own thing. I'm not going to divert from it. I am going to do what the instructions say. And for Kirk Cousins to have eight of his 23 passing attempts behind the line of scrimmage and going one for 13 on third down and each third down attempt, you throw behind the line of scrimmage. I'm sorry. That's not Kirk Cousins. And that's not his offensive line freaking out either. And that's not Kirk. I, I, there's there's no reason why Kirk Cousins should be shouldn't be throwing past the first down markers on third down, especially because the Vikings got themselves in a lot of third and long situations. That comes from coaching, and the biggest reason is it comes from the play calling, and the play calling comes from the head coach. So I'm going to say that Zimmer points Kubiak in this direction, and Kubiak is too young to be able to really have any input. See, the Vikings are trying to recreate that 2019 formula. You're not quite the contender you once were, but you're still hoping that you're good enough to get in and maybe win a game or two once you get in. And they're trying to do that relying on a first-time NFL offensive coordinator. The only difference was Kevin Stefanski had been with the organization for, what, about uh, about 12 years before getting the chance to be offensive coordinator, not just that he was coaching with the Vikings for 12 years, because he's doing a lot of odd jobs and bad, co- you know, like not bad, but a lot of very humble positions. He was his first job for the Vikings was just to look at the weather report and see if the Vikings need to practice indoors or outdoors that day. Uh, so he he definitely wasn't uh, calling plays or he definitely wasn't drawing up offenses. He was just kind of there, but he'd been with the same team, so he knew everybody. He had a great relation. He had a great working relationship. When you've been with a place twelve years, you probably have a great working relationship with people, especially in the NFL, where people come and go all the time. And 
Kevin Stefanski had been there for so long, and he had Gary Kubiak sitting behind him as the offensive advisor. So basically it was Gary Kubiak's offense, but Kevin Stefanski took big inspiration and took big uh, kind of notes, just modernizing it a little bit and putting his little tweak on it. And that's how they were successful. The reason you can't do that with Clint Kubiak is, one, his dad is gone. He retired. So he's not there. But even if he was, and even though he's not there, it's just it's his dad. So things are going to be a little bit different. And also, Kubiak was there to kind of mediate in terms of Stefanski. And I'm just kind of spitballing with this one, but I th I think it holds up and hear me out. Stefanski could have an offensive idea that Zimmer wouldn't like. But Stefanski can go to Kubiak, and Kubiak can kind of be that liaison, that guy to kind of say, hey, that's... Zim, I see what you're saying here, but why don't we try it this way? Because in my years of coaching and all this experience, I've heard this, 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 X, Y, Z. Let's do it this way. Boom, you figure it out, or at least you come to a compromise. Clint Kubiak, even though I think him and Zim have a good working relationship, and I know Zimmer really respects Gary Kubiak, there's no way Clint Kubiak's going in and saying, all right, Zim, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and we can't do Even though you want to do this, we can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. He doesn't have the tenure. Because a couple of years ago, he was like on the Kansas coaching staff like as the ball boy or something. That's an exaggeration. But he, he wasn't doing a lot before then, especially in the NFL. He didn't have the staying power. He didn't have, And Stefanski was a fairly young offensive coordinator at the time. Clint Kubiak is younger than him. So the, it, there's just a lot of inexperience there, and I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm not even going after Clint Kubiak to say he should be fired or say he's a terrible offensive coordinator. I don't think he is. I think he's just a guy who's – it's the Ryan Saunders – aspect of it when you look at the Wolves. It's not that he was a terrible, good-for-nothing coach. He was too young. Maybe he wasn't ready, but either way, he definitely needed more veteran people enabling him and trying to help him grow. Zimmer, I don't think, is enabling him and helping him grow, and even if he wants to, I don't think Zimmer is capable of that from an offensive standpoint. So with Clint Kubiak, you know, it's just, I think it's not a terrible idea to have a guy that young do the, do this role. And I don't even think it's a – I mean, he obviously got it because of nepotism. But I don't think that it necessarily meant that he was unqualified for the job either. There's just the growing pains of having a rookie play caller. There's going to be things that you regret. There's going to be things that you need to learn from. And you're not going to learn from them until you do them and you realize, oh, that's why I can't call this play in this situation. That's why we needed to call this. You, know, you just – you need to get the experience, and he's getting it with the Vikings right now. But the Vikings haven't scored a second-half touchdown at U.S. Bank Stadium. What are we even doing here? And again, this goes to head coaching a little bit too, but I don't want to make this a whole Zimmer rag thing. Why are you not being more aggressive? Why are we not figuring out how to score a touchdown in the second half at home when the teams you've played at home have been the Cleveland Browns with an injured Baker Mayfield, have been the Seattle Seahawks, who's defense has the structural integrity of a wet cardboard box and more holes than Swiss cheese. You you also couldn't score a second half touchdown against Detroit. Detroit! And you let them come back in the game because your offense couldn't score a touchdown in the second half. Oh, and then you had another home game against the Cowboys? Yeah, their defense was good, but you scored before. You scored one touchdown in that game. Just, I mean, it's just all that kind of factors coming into that. And so there's definitely blame on Kubiak. And is he the offensive coordinator next season? If Zimmer's around, probably, unless he needs a fall guy, but I think he would stick around. But if Zimmer gets fired, Clint Kubiak's not even going to be the associate head coach filling in. It's going to be Andre Patterson. We talked about that yesterday, just because he's the most experienced guy in the room. I just feel like that's who they would give it to. But 
Clint Kubiak, I'm sorry, he's got a future. He's probably will get fired after this year or not be retained once Zimmer gets fired. He'll either go find a job offensive coordinating for a new young head coach or a new head coach, or he'll fill an open spot, or what's probably going to happen is he'll probably go take another QB coach job and then wait to become an offensive coordinator again. Because now you have that under your belt, you have that job status, and now you go find a better team, be offensive coordinator for there, wait till a guy leaves to go become a head coach, and then you go take the job. That's how it's going to work out. Unless somehow Gary Kubiak comes out of retirement and decides he wants to head coach the Minnesota Vikings. I don't think he'll do that. So I don't think Clint Kubiak is necessarily even a bad offensive coordinator. I, I don't think he's terrible. I'm not going to say he's great. I'm not going to say he's a visionary. I think that there are definitely flaws. Like, why aren't the Vikings utilizing play action more? Why aren't they, you know, why are they doing this and that? And how much of it comes down to the head coach? How much of it comes down to the offensive coordinator? Now, that's something that we're probably never really going to know, or at least never really going to have a realistic idea of. But that's the thing is it's going to be, it's just, it's not working. I think everything's just not working. And that, I think, is the gist of what this whole conversation has been the last week when it's come to Vikings talk. I think it's just, it's time to tear it all down and start over. I think as much as I like Spielman, as much as I like Zimmer, as much as, you know, I'm okay with Cousins, everything just, everything just needs to go. It's just not working. You're just stuck in a rut. Things aren't working. And even though you're trying new things, it's just not getting better. You need to accept that it's over, sign the papers, move out, and call it good. It's going to suck at first. I know a lot of Vikings fans are not wanting to rebuild, and I'm in one of that camp initially was, Hey, why we don't, I don't want to rebuild. Like this is going to be too long of a process and it's going to be a lot, you know, it's going to, things are going to get worse before they get better. And are we okay with that? Things really aren't that great right now. I mean, you're three and four, your team is at the epitome of mediocrity with their 18th in points scored, despite what Zimmer said yesterday in the press conference, which by the way, was just him being very defensive and him basically politicking for when the Vikings fire me, Las Vegas, you should really hire me next season. And I think that that's, I think it's, he's trying to defend himself. And as a head coach, you really do believe that your team is only a couple wins away. Your team is only a couple misplays away from being X or Y. But outside of somebody who's with the team and somebody who's has an invested stake in this, your team is not good. Your team, your team is already not in a good spot and you have a lot of expiring contracts. So even if you do turn things around, what are you going to resign all these defensive players? Doubtful. You're going to sign more you know, draft more, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of question marks with this team. And that's the biggest issue. And the Vikings have always been good enough to hang around. They've been good enough to be mediocre. They've been good enough to be middle of the pack, sometimes even above average. And they've never been bad enough to truly bottom out for a top three pick. And when they do, they select Matt freaking Khalil. So I don't know, maybe if they even want that, but it's, I know I don't care that this team was a field goal away from the Cardinals. I know it was from beating the Cardinals. And, oh, my gosh, if Dalvin Cook didn't fumble, they beat Cincinnati. And you're right. They don't. If they make a field goal, they win the game. If they if they don't fumble, and I know that it, the fumble call probably wasn't correct, but it still doesn't matter. You still let yourself get in that situation. Or if you know you, you make a one – if you be more aggressive or if you don't do X or Y against Dallas, then you win – but that's the thing. Good teams figure out a way to do it. Good teams figure out a way to win. And some teams just figure out ways to win. I'm sorry, the Vikings have never figured out outside of the Carolina game. How many times and the Detroit game, every game has been close this season, except for the Seattle one. 
but those two teams were so bad. But how how do you find ways to win against good teams? That is how good teams win, is they find ways to win against other good teams to prove that they're better than the good teams and should be considered better. The Jets beat the Bengals, by the way, handily. Also, look, Trevor Simeon. Remember backup quarterback Trevor Simeon? He was with the Vikings for a season. He came in in relief duty when Jameis got hurt in like the first quarter or early in the second quarter. The guy played fine. He didn't play great, but he played well enough to keep the Saints in the game, and they beat the Buccaneers. So just if you look at the multi-week strain of failure with the Vikings in late-game situations and with executing or just finding ways to win, yeah, I know there are a couple mis- I know there are a couple missed plays away from being in a better spot, but the problem is they're not. The problem is they made those plays. They made the bed that they're lying in. It's not like some outsized force really changed anything. You made enough mistakes. This Vikings team is too flawed. I would even give you the case more in 2018 because at least the 2018 team was a better team on paper to say, well, if this goes right and that goes right, we're really this. It was like last year. Well, if the Vikings beat the Bears, then they're in the playoffs. Or if the Vikings didn't beat the, didn't lose to the Cowboys, then they're in the playoffs. Yeah, but they didn't. And that's the thing. But they didn't. And are we going to sit here and say, well, next time they will? Or are we saying we need to make sure we need to make changes into the structure of this organization? That's what the Vikings are are really going to have to do. All right, so now looking here at uh, the Minnesota Twins as we uh, try and uh, go through this podcast here today. Taking a look at Minnesota with uh, the Twins, this the Braves came out and won the World Series a couple nights ago, obviously. Uh, we all uh, watched that, and they the Braves won. They had a couple former Twins. They had Eddie Rosario and they had Eri Adrian. So good for them. I'm, I'm like, it's honestly like, it's not like a good for them or should have stayed in Minnesota. Whatever. Like they moved on. They had success and it's fun to root for success for people you used to watch because you remember the joy of when they got a big hit and you know how other teams feel watching them do that. So that's been, uh, that's been fun to see, but also Polanco, uh, we, ta- we talked about this a little bit last week, but Polanco did get nominated for a silver slugger award. And he's not going to win because it's at second base and he's got Jose Altuve and Marcus Simeon and all that kind of stuff. So he's not going to win it. But the fact that he was nominated for it just shows that the national recognition Polanco got for having a good season last year. And if Polanco can even – he doesn't have to be the exact same. But even even if he can be like 80% of that, 90% of that, that's still a pretty dang good player. And somebody for a second baseman that the Twins could really utilize – going forward and speaking of that twins offense this offense really is a team i i know that there's a lot of debate on home runs in the playoffs and do they matter do they not matter you got to string base hits together to win and i I understand the philosophy and all that but here's a tweet from sarah langs of espn and she says teams to out homer opponents were 25 and 2 this postseason teams that out homer opponents were 25 and 2 this postseason when a team hit more home runs than the other team, they won 25 times out of 27. The uh, the Twins were fifth in the league in home runs last year. Fifth in the league. This is a team that can hit. They're a team that can do it. They are a team that can play. They're a team that can hit. They're a team that can hit the ball over the fence. And they can do it just about with any other team. And I know that Nelson Cruz accounted for 16 of those home runs for the Twins last year. But, I mean, you got to factor a healthy Kirilov, a full season of Trevor Larnick, a full season of a healthy Brent Rooker, or heck, even a, an extra month of a healthy Buxton makes up a lot of those home runs that you would have gotten from Cruz. 
So this Twins team isn't going to lose their home run edge. This is still a team that is capable of hitting the ball out of the ballpark at a very high rate, and that's going to help you win games. But the biggest thing that has bothered the Twins this season is, and I don't have a stat pulled up in front of me, but I remember this was a conversation about the team during the season, is that they hit a lot of home runs, but there is nobody on base when they're hitting home runs. They are not finding a way to cash in with extra base hits and are hitting the ball over the fence with runners in scoring position. And when you looked at it, the Twins actually had one of the worst records for long stretches throughout the season of hitting with runners in scoring position. And that's really what sank their season from an offensive standpoint. Now, of course, it was really pitching, but the big flaw in their offense was that they couldn't get hits in big-time spots. No matter what point in the game, if a runner's on second base that's a, in the second inning, that's a big spot in the game because you need to get that run across. So the Twins have to figure out how to get more home runs with guys on base. And the answer is it's kind of like turnovers in the NFL. It's just kind of fluky sometimes. You know, some some years you're going to be great with ru- hitting with runners in scoring position. Sometimes you're not. It doesn't necessarily mean your team is more cl- one year's team is more clutch than the other, but it although it doesn't necessarily rule that out either. But it also just means that hey, sometimes it's a little bit lucky. Sometimes you just have to get lucky that your team is uh getting hits and getting home runs with uh runners in scoring position, but man, I don't I don't know. It's the Here's my biggest takeaway with the Twins. They have the capabilities of being a good offense. They really do. And their offense can be so good that it can basically do the 2017 thing where even if they're not trying to compete, even if they're not trying to make the playoffs, that offense might be good enough to just straight up lift the team at times and keep them in that playoff conversation. So they have the capabilities. They still have the Donaldsons. They still have the Polancos, the Sonos. The, you know, they, they have pieces, the Garvers. Even getting more healthy at-bats from Mitch Garver helps out your team in the home run numbers a lot. So this is a team that, even though they lost Nelson Cruz, is still a team that can replicate a lot of that form because they're keeping almost every other starter. And they're losing Angleton Simmons, who didn't hit any home runs anyways. So this is a big opportunity for this team. If they want to compete, they have to lower the strikeout rate a little bit too. Uh, When you look at strikeouts, um, the Twins are about 18th in strikeouts, averaging about 8.6 strikeouts a game. And it was down like very little from the year before, but the biggest thing is they need to hit with rudders in scoring position when in terms of home runs and in general. But in terms of home runs, if the Twins clean that up, their offense could be back to the 2019 Bomba Squad form where it was just lights out and it was very, very tough on opposing hitters or on opposing pitchers rather to be able to do anything. And that I think is the biggest key for the Twins if they really do want to compete on offense because we all know pitching has a lot of work but if they really want to compete on offense they have to figure out how to get more hits with runners in scoring position and to lower that strikeout rate all right well moving back to the wolves here there was one thing that we missed that i want to make sure that we touch on and this was this report that carl anthony towns uh apparently liked a tweet that said hashtag free cat on it now he's claiming he was hacked but he was but apparently a guy hacked his twitter to only like one tweet so color me a little skeptical. Now maybe Cat accidentally liked it, or maybe Cat like really did like it, but now kind of was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Now it's to go on the defensive. But uh, the tweet from Cat was somebody who was commenting on the Timberwolves and Carl Anthony Towns, like a post about him, and so he it, all it said was hashtag free Cat, and he liked it. And Carl Anthony Towns put a password out there that said, just change my password. We saw it on here now, you know, implying whatever. Uh, Kat's answer 
from uh, Dane Moore on Twitter here. It says, honestly, I woke up this morning. My agent hit me and was like, Carl, what is this? And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm in cursing. I'm, I'm inserting my own stuff because he curses in this. Uh, he said, dang, there's only three people who have my account, me, Jess, and my agent, Chucky. Chucky was asleep. I know Chucky didn't do it because he was in the hospital with his father. I know he didn't have time to do that. Jess never has used it, so I got hacked. Easy thing. Fix the password. Sorry, Wolves fans. I ain't want to because no hysteria or anything like that. I just am very happy. I know we're on a skid. You know, the worst possible time, that hacking. Just now, I'm very sure I'm excited to be here. Yeah. I mean, according to this article, too, it says the Athletics' John Krasinski reported in September that it didn't appear Towns was prepared to demand a trade from the Wolves as he still has an additional two years left on that max deal. Um, but the Wolves have been terrible, and that's basically what this article goes on to say. Yeah, Carl Anthony Towns really doesn't want to trade, but the Wolves still are also terrible, and don't be surprised in, in the next couple of years. And, like, if he did it, it wouldn't be a surprise to us, is basically what he's saying. Do I think Carl Anthony Towns is busting down the doors trying to get traded? No, I don't. Do I think he's giving Finch, and he's giving, maybe not Gupta so much, but at least that style, he's giving Chris Finch, and he's giving this new kind of vision a chance? Sure, he totally is doing that. But, you know, if in a year and a half things still go south and he's got like a half a year left on his contract and he sees he's got maybe Anthony Davis like broke his ankle or something and has no chance of coming back to play for the Lakers and the Lakers want him, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for Cat to say no and to not demand that trade. So it's just a lot of interesting stuff developing. Just going to have to watch it as it goes on. I wouldn't make anything huge out of this Cat ordeal. But I also wouldn't be too particularly uh, happy if I was a Wolves fan right now either. But winning cures all ailments, and if they're able to win, then everybody will forget this as well. But that'll do it for us on the Minnesota Sports Podcast here for today. Be sure to join us in tomorrow. We have more great stuff coming your way here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.